Good morning, family and friends. Please allow me to read from the Word of God out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided among, against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called up, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So even now, Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our only Redeemer. Amen. In a brief introduction to the book Two Kingdoms at War by Umberto Saba, Amazon had this to say, A great war rages between two kingdoms, hatred and love. Wherever salvation, indeed God's salvation, reaches the people, there too Satan steps in the most determined fight to oppose it through persecution, oppression, mockery, deceit and confusion. Satan has several divisions in his evil army, all of which have one thing in common, to fight God and his grace. And I think that was written sometime in 2010. But actually the Bible long ago affirms that we are engaged in combat with an unseen enemy that is intent on destroying the human race. 
Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Oftentimes this struggle plays itself out on earth. In fact, from the passage just read, we see very starkly there are two opposing kingdoms. In this dramatic backdrop, Luke shows Jesus' authority as the Messiah, the Son of God sent to deliver us from the power of Satan. He shows Jesus' authority, putting him into conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. It is in the mounting tension of this story that we like the religious leaders, are challenged on two fronts. But before we go there, let me just want to suggest and, and to point out today that being aligned to God's kingdom values and kingdom purposes is not a one-time, once-for-all decision. It is a daily decision. There's a dailiness, a moment-to-momentness in living out this alignment. But now we come back that since that there are two opposing kingdoms, we are challenged on two fronts. The first is this. Choose to rethink your thinking. We want to consider first one area, the nature of Satan's kingdom. The Bible clearly teaches that Satan is a real spiritual being and not just an impersonal force for evil. He is an angel who rebelled against God and who commands a host of other evil spirits called demons who also rebelled against God. He is here in Luke's portrayal also called Beelzebul, a popular name for the prince of demons. This name actually can be traced back to Baal worship and meant Lord of the Temple and also it was a derisive Hebrew pun which meant Lord of the Flies. At any rate, it seems that Luke was not really concerned about the word's origin or meaning, but it seems only that he used it as a popular name for Satan. Satan's kingdom is evil, and those who are captured by him are placed in bondage. It does seem that the man who was mute his muteness was due to demonic chains. We are not told what gave the evil spirits a legal right into this man's life. It could have been some curse passed down through the sins of his ancestors or because of some sin in his own life. As Christians, we need to recognize that physical bondages, like other physiological bondages, are sometimes the works of the devil. And this as it contrasts with a philosophical naturalism mindset that says everything that happens can be explained by natural causes with no supernatural influence, cause or interventions. Now, and that's I think some of the problem today, that there are actually people, Christians, who do not believe in the, the, uh, the healing and deliverance ministry. They don't even believe in demons. 
because they say it can be the things that happen can be explained um, by natural causes. Here's the thing, though. That which is supernatural cannot be explained in the natural. That, I think, is something we have to accept. That which is supernatural cannot be explained in the natural. Actually, it is important that the cause for a person's physical infirmities or mental or emotional, that these actually be accurately diagnosed because if the problem is spiritual or demonic, it will not be cured by natural means. Then we need to think about the nature of God's kingdom. The power of the kingdom of God is reflected in the man's healing. When Jesus drove out the demons um, that was mute, the chains of infirmity were destroyed and the man was then able to speak. So the two kingdoms actually stand in stark contrast. Satan's kingdom puts people in bondage. God's kingdom sets them free. We also want to think about when two kingdoms collide. Whenever deliverance takes place, there are a variety of reactions. And we see that actually in Luke's, uh, in Luke's gospel, that, that particular chapter. Some people are filled with fear. Others are awestruck. Some are believing. Still others disbelieve or doubt. Some praise God. Others scoff. In this particular case, we see some asking for a or yet another sign from heaven. We also see others accusing Jesus using the power of Beelzebul, the prince of devils, to drive out the demons. But you see, actually that thinking is illogical. So when you say rethink your thinking, that particular thinking by the religious leaders is illogical. Satan is not in the business of casting out demons because he won't divide his kingdom, lest it be destroyed. And then secondly, there is incidentally also um, a hypocritical uh, posture, a hypocritical position uh, by these religious leaders to single Jesus out for condemnation uh, saying he used the power of Beelzebul and not to judge their own followers for doing the same thing, for driving out demons. Of course, also, I just want to make a note that uh, where Satan is concerned, um, although we say that uh, Satan uh, would not drive out demons because he doesn't want to jeopardize his kingdom, yet Satan can and does, in fact, counterfeit deliverances when it suits his purpose. There are situations where supposed healings or deliverances take place, uh, but, for example, through occult sources or occult means. What appears then to be a tearing down of Satan's house by his own hands is actually a deception by which he is in the process of enlarging his house Demonic counterfeits exchange a lesser bondage for a greater one. Then there is that aspect of deliverance um, is actually God's kingdom in action. Whenever a demon is cast out, the kingdom of God is operative. Jesus said 
If I drive out demons by the finger of God, which is to say by the Spirit of God, and you can look at Luke chapter 11 verse 20 and cross-reference that to Matthew chapter 12 verse 28, um, where it talks about the finger of God, it talks about the Spirit of God. Then Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, God's power will prevail, defeating the kingdom of darkness. So I want to share um, uh, uh, an encounter, an experience. Kenvin, all right, and Kenvin is not his real name, was an 11 uh, or 12 year old. He is not now. He is a lot older. Uh, he is, of course, not in this church, right? But his parents, his parent spoke to me about how he was afraid because at nights, apparently there was a dark shadow that seemed to lodge itself in the corner of his room. So I, I, I had a chance and I spoke uh, to Kenvin separately um, and tried to, to find out you know, what he experienced or what he felt or what he saw. One of the things I did with him was to ask him, have you at some point uh, in your life, Kenvin, invited Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior? And he, of course, couldn't remember um, or he said, maybe uh, no. So he was not sure. All right. So I asked him if you maybe want to consider accepting Jesus into his heart to be his Lord and Savior, which he said, he smiled and said, yes, he would love to do that, just to be sure. So we did, and we did just that. And after that, I said, you know, when you have Jesus living in your heart, you don't need to be afraid. All right. I said, but nevertheless, this time here, um, I'm going to sit and I'm going to command the spirit of darkness to leave your room in Jesus' name. And so I prayed with him and I prayed a command prayer for the spirit of darkness in Jesus' name to leave his room. After that, I also taught him how to command the spirit, if it, ever, if it came back to, to, to disturb him, how to command the spirit to leave. And so we did all that in our time together. So subsequently, after about three or four days, I did call his mom um, and I, just to check in to how is he was doing. Uh, and she said he, had, she hadn't complained, so she hadn't asked him at all. So about a week later, when I saw him back in church, uh, I asked him, you know, hey, um, Kenvin, how did it go in the week gone by? You know, you, you shared about that dark shadow. Uh, where, did it come back, disturb you? And he had a bright smile. He said, no, it didn't come back. And so he said, it didn't come back. And you know what? It actually never came back. If, like Jesus, I can drive out a demon by the finger of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon, in this case, it was this young man's life. God's power will prevail, defeating the kingdom of darkness. Believe it. Choose to rethink, therefore, your thinking today. And remembering that there are two opposing kingdoms here, here's the second challenge. Choose where your allegiance lies. The first thing we need to do in choosing where our allegiance lies is to bind 
the strong man. Jesus revealed how he was able to set the mute man free. In doing so, he revealed an important spiritual principle to us. First, bind the strong man and then plunder, ESV says that, plunder or spoil his, um, his, his kingdom. Okay? Um, he, I think Jesus here often utilizes, uh, or he reminds us actually, Jesus reminds us that Satan is active and whenever he is active, he actually often uses a delegated demonic representative. This, what you might call the operations commander, is called the strong man. The strong man is the ruling spirit over a system of spirits. There may be strong men assigned over individuals, over families, I believe over organizations, institutions, including nations. Jesus gave his church the power to bind the strong men and to spoil the strong men's house. This means the devil's captives are released, his control and authority over them are broken and cancelled. The devil's rule over them is replaced by God's. And so there is no place for neutrality. There is no middle ground in the call to spiritual warfare. Jesus clarified this with these words. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Is it possible then, based on what Jesus was saying, that he's actually trying to say that those who are not involved in spiritual warfare or who reject the ministry of deliverance are considered as those who are not standing with him or in fact standing against him. And that if they are not ministering deliverance for the restoring of those who are broken um, to, or restoring those who are in bondage, they may be with the ones who actually seem to be dismembering or incapacitating Christ's body on earth. Is that what Jesus maybe might have been suggesting? There's something else we need to think about, about maintaining our deliverance. When a demon is cast out of a person, it wanders in dry places, in arid places, some translations have it. But if it finds no relief elsewhere, it will soon return to inspect the place from which it was driven out of. If the house, which represents the life of the person, is left empty, the demon will re-enter, bring other spirits with it, resulting in the person in a worse state than before. Protection against demons returning is by being filled with the things of God. And here we have what I want to suggest to us, borrowing uh, from a pastor, is to, he talked about it in terms of the remove and replace principle. So in other words, when the demons are cast out, when the demons are cast out, it, the, the vacuum that they leave behind needs to be filled with the things of God. And these include, and I think Frank Hammond actually puts it very well, these include, there are five things, 
these include firstly the disciplined living. Over and over, those serving in the deliverance ministry have discovered that undisciplined lives provide access for demonic infiltration. There is a need to work out your deliverance by filling your house. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 reminds, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Undisciplined thought life can be the very seedbed for demonic infestation. The renewing of the mind comes through programming the mind by the word of God. Don't live defeated, discontented, depressed and discouraged lives because you allow your mind to be filled by the garbage that is fed to you by the evil one. Don't allow him to do that. One of the greatest discoveries a Christian can make is that he or she has power over their thought life. You can choose what not to think about and what to think about. What is the focus of a proper thought life? Let me borrow from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whatsoever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if these, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. This verse prescribes the choice of godly edifying thoughts. If the thoughts that fill one's mind lead down a path of fear, depression, filth, perversions, unbelief, and things contrary to God's word, then one must activate his will or her will and turn their mind switch to reject and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The battle for the mind is a strategic battle. Unless the battle in the mind is won, problems of the thought life will filter into the emotions and the will. For example, an unchecked thought of resentment can lead to feelings of bitterness and acts of retaliation. Through the lack of a disciplined mind, Satan is able to build strongholds in a person's mind. The other thing that remove and replace needs to take place is the disciplined emotions. Disciplined emotions are healthy emotions, channels through which we express praise, worship, our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Undisciplined emotions are channels filled with the darkness of jealousy, hatred, anger, fear, hopelessness, self-pity, depression, pride, arrogance. A third thing in the remove and replace principle, the disciplined will. The human will that is compliant to God's will discovers fellowship with God and victory over the adversary or the evil one. James chapter 4 verse 7 reminds, Be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The next aspect of remove and replace is the disciplined tongue. Every spoken word goes forth in ministry. Remember, 
your word goes forth and it ministers, either to tear down or to build up. Truly, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 2 tells us, the undisciplined tongue keeps a person knee-deep in demonic toxicity. The fifth thing in the remove and replace principle is discipline appetites of the flesh. Unrestrained lusts, whether it be for food, drink, money, sex or power, have brought many a person to ruin. Paul realized that his years of faithful service to God were no guarantee of continued victory. He must daily guard against personal hypocritical failure. So he says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. And we have that reflected actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. The highest motivation for curbing sensual appetites and glorifying God in one's body is the continuous confession that one's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within. When all is said and done though, it isn't about being caught up by signs and wonders or hankering after the, the spectacular, no matter how spec spectacular that is, including the wow of deliverance. We find that in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. It's not about hankering, being caught up or hankering after signs and wonders. Rather, it's about the dailiness of walking in obedience, of walking in kingdom obedience, of walking in obedience to the king. And actually, the main measure of our success in fulfilling the Great Commission, I don't know what you think is the measure of success in fulfilling the Great Commission, but let me suggest today, it is not by how many people have been baptized, important though that is, it's not even about how many people we have taught Instead, it is about how many disciples we have taught to obey Christ. And here, for many of us, for many of us who are in small or cell groups, John Wesley's class meeting provides, I think, a very helpful way to help us walk in obedience, to help us walk in kingdom obedience, to help us walk in obedience to the king. Because why? If someone, say, is delivered in this church, all right? if someone is post-deliverance, if someone is delivered in this church, if he or she comes to your cell, it would be a wonderful thing to be able, using John Wesley's model for class meeting, to watch over and pray for this person, the whole group to watch over and pray for the person, to continue to walk in obedience. It is a wonderful way, this John Wesley way, of holding us in loving accountability and watching over one another in love. It was Dallas Willard who said this, 
the narrow gate, where it concerns obedience, Dallas Willis said this, the narrow gate is not as so often assumed doctrinal correct, correct, correctives. No, doctrinal correct, correctness. The narrow gate, let me say that again, is not as so often is assumed doctrinal correctness. The narrow gate is obedience and the confidence in Jesus necessary to it. Let me share another um, experience that I had. There was a couple, okay, um, a couple, a married Christian couple, and I shall just name, give them the name J and K, initials J and K, all right? Um, oh, just by the way, they are not in this church as well. So don't, don't go around asking who is it, who is it, all right? But this married couple came for help. Well, at least one of the spouse did. Jay did, okay? Jay came. And the story that, that Jay told me was this, that Kay was engaged in ongoing sexual immorality with another person. It was evident on Kay's phone and Kay was going out to the third party whenever the phone call came. When confronted, the guilty Kay was remorseful and said, I can't help it. I have to go. Despite repeated promises and endless remorses and saying it won't happen again, it always did. This went on for weeks into months. Having prayed and had time to assess the situation, it was sensed this had become a spiritual bondage situation. The sexual immorality first engaged in had created an open door and a legal right for further demonic influence and oppression. You see, K, and this I'm talking initial K and J, the initial is J and J, okay? Um, but those are not their names, but K wanted it. Uh, K wanted this, this sensual experience, but also wanted to be set free. So another pastor and I, would together visit with Kay to do deliverance. And it took more than one session because there were other areas that Kay needed healing and deliverance. Along the way, I told Jay that in the deliverance ministry, when the ministers, when the ministers pray in Jesus' name, deliverance is done. The person will be set free. Now, I want to say this. I believe in prayer. I wish I could say, though, that prayer is the key to the ministry of healing and deliverance. But the truth is, we can't make up by prayer what we lose by disobedience, disbelief, or simple lack of due diligence and discipline. So, when we ministered deliverance to K, K is set free. K was set free of bondages. But now K needs to walk daily from moment to moment in the breakthrough and freedom that the Holy Spirit had given. And that was what I told Jay. That Jay needed to help K 
walk the daily nurse, the daily nurse of the freedom that had been given to her in Christ. Kingdom Alignment asks the question, where does your allegiance really lie? Because whose you are will determine who you are. Let me say that again. Whose you are will determine who you are. I'm grateful though that there were cell group members who post case deliverance continued to journey with K, watching over K with love. Using, they didn't know it that time, but it was actually class meeting version. So that K was protected and continued to walk in obedience daily. Kingdom obedience. Praise God, K was able to align K's mind, emotions, will to God's kingdom values and was totally set free. And so at this point in time, I want to remind us also that um, if we ourselves go through a process of deliverance, uh, the challenge for us is that we need to walk in our deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ministry of healing and deliverance that you have given to your body, the church, to heal the brokenness and to proclaim liberty, freedom to captives, prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. For those of us who struggle with this, this aspect of ministry of healing and deliverance, won't you give us the grace to take the time to rethink our thinking? For those of us, Lord, who have experienced deliverance and have been set free in Christ, have found spiritual healing in Christ. I pray for each one to believe that by the Holy Spirit, they are empowered to walk daily, to moment by moment walk in the breakthrough and freedom that they have received. May their lives testify to your immense grace and your empowering love. Thank you also for the reminder from Pastor Anthony some weeks back that um, power and authority are given to us, your disciples, in the ministry of healing and deliverance. What a privilege, Lord, to serve in that way. May we do so with reverence, always recognizing that to you and to you alone belongs all glory and praise. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.